0: He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table
1: with Dr. Philip Ovedia.
0: We are live in three, two, one. I think we're live. You know, I've only done this about 800 times. You'd think I'd have figured it out by now. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, Dr. Philip Ovedi. I'm Jack Heald, the resident idiot. And we are joined today by Dr. Tro Kalajian, uh, more famously known as Dr. Tro, and uh, his sidekick, Dr. Laura Buchanan. Welcome, y'all. Good to have you here.
2: Thanks so much for having us.
3: Yeah, always a pleasure. Always a
0: pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, a lot of times, Phil, um, you bring these folks on and I go, why the heck are these folks here? And then it ends up being an awesome conversation. Uh, But I think I know why Dr. Tro's here. Nevertheless, I'll still ask the question, why are these folks here?
1: Yeah, the real question for this episode is what took us so long to get these uh, folks here. Um, So, you know, to start with, Tro uh, really has been one of my... uh, mentors and guiding forces uh, through this metabolic health journey. Um, He was instrumental in helping me set up uh, my medical practice, and really just someone who uh, is leading the way in making metabolic health a part of the healthcare system. And uh, Laura is one of those uh, shining, uh, bright, uh, young lights uh, in the space as well. I first met her uh, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago at one of the conferences, um, she was still in her training at that time, and uh, but knew uh, already that she wanted to uh, integrate metabolic health into her practice. And, uh, and she was fortunate enough to get hired to work with Tro now, so they are now partners uh, and uh, excited for our audience to hear about everything that they are doing. Um, Why don't we start with, uh, we want to, you know, certainly get both of your backstories. And uh, Laura, why don't we do ladies first? Let's hear about how you got here.
2: Absolutely. So I grew up loving playing sports, and that was really where my passion was. In undergrad, kind of high school undergrad, I started seeing some of the people in my life I love age very differently. Some were aging really well, and some were not. And, you know, it was clearly driven by the lifestyle that they were living. And so by the time I had finished undergrad and decided I want to go to medical school, I knew I wanted to help people age successfully. And then it was kind of the path of how how do I best do that? And uh, very fortunately, I came across the Low Carb MD podcast, Nina Teicholz's big fat surprise and then, uh, you know, Jason Fung's books and just really started diving Deep into that literature and realize what I was taught in medical school regarding nutrition and chronic disease was wrong.
0: How, how did I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here more because I, I have the opportunity to do it. How did you respond to realizing that your education was wrong?
2: I was very frustrated. I didn't actually, during medical school, couldn't really do much. And I might ask one or two questions during the lecture, but that was pretty much the extent of my pushback or my questioning of it. Um, but it was, I got a continuous glucose monitor during my fourth year of medical school. Really, mm-hmm. And so fortunately I had a mentor, uh, one of the docs there and I told him why I wanted it. And he was willing to prescribe me one. And I learned some of the things I was eating because I had sort of transitioned to a more what I believe was a low carb diet because I thought that was, you know, the healthier lifestyle realized I was not eating things that were actually low carb. It was, you know, false advertisements. My sugar was going to 180. And so quickly made a few more. Okay.
0: All right. I'm the dummy. So tell us what healthy should be because giving me a number doesn't mean anything to me. I know you guys know what it means, but. I don't, and the people who listen to this usually don't.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, I wouldn't want a blood sugar really to go above 120. There's some data now if you, from your baseline blood sugar, if you have an increase by more than 65 points, then that is damaging to your blood vessels. So, if you're at 80, you really don't want to go above 140.
0: Okay. All right. So, you've got the, the CGM. Continue.
2: Yeah, so continued to tweak and improve my lifestyle. And then when residency started, right out the gate, you know, I had all these, I started watching the Low Carb USA conferences virtually, and I started practicing low carb in residency. And so my patients, when they would come in with their diabetes, I would start talking to them about what they were eating rather than just adding on additional medications. And the results were great, and so you know, initially I got a little bit of pushback. I ordered fasting insulin on patients, and it's like, why are you getting an insulin on this patient? Their A one C is normal, or you already know what their A one C is. How's that going to change management? And so, but I, you know, explained my logic, the reasoning, the research, and eventually I stopped getting pushback, and people were more interested and in asked questions and. Um, I think, you know, some people actually, I see more fasting insulins being obtained. And, um, so there's been a little, a transition or more acceptance of low carb actually within the residency. That makes me happy.
1: Well, she, yeah. It's really, being really English. great to hear that you were able to, you know, start off this way instead of, uh, having to unlearn, uh, a lot of, uh, things that, uh, Guys like Tro and I have had to unlearn. Uh, so, Tro, you know, um, I think many in our audience are going to be familiar with you, but uh, for those that aren't, let's get a little bit of your backstory.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to add that Dr. Laura's being so uh, humble about it. I mean, she's, you know, she's done two major poster presentations on uh, a low carb intervention that she's presented on at the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners she's you know she's on the board now for the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners and she's leading uh several committees there and uh she's volunteered at a you know nearby uh you know uh, clinic a federally uh you know healthcare center um to you know educate them on low carb i mean she the real real deal so I'm honored to be able to, you know, have somebody to buy in enough that we can change medicine to come join me. And I'm just, I just want to reiterate that she's humble. She won't say all this, Phil. So I got to say it because she she definitely won't be saying it. Um, so she's the real deal. And I got to, I got to do one more thing to embarrass her. Oh, no. uh, she, she beat me on both board exams. So I, I, you know, I always tout I'm the guy who, went to this Yale-affiliated internal medicine, you know, residency, scored on the 90th percentile on my board exams. And she's like, Tro, you know, I scored on the 99th percentile. So I definitely, you know, found somebody smarter than me. Um, so, and she won't say any of this, so I'm going to say it.
0: Well, <laughs> I'm you a favor by, by by coming to work with you
3: is what I'm hearing. Basically, basically that's the case. Um yeah like so if you, I'm the lucky one this is- <laughs> so if you don't know my story uh let's see i'm a three hundred fifty pounds ex doc whose wife inspired him to figure this out, like he'd figure out you know which surgical technique to use or which antibiotic and pneumonia and uh you you go to the literature and uh, to, to just kind of, so I went to the literature, I'm inspired, you know, to kind of figure this out. And, uh, what I found out quickly, you know, I had no skin in the game. I was an ex vegan, you know, I was a calorie counting, you know, kind of, well, you were a 350
0: pound ex vegan.
3: Well, you know, it's a checkered past, but yeah, I had a, at least, at least one year of my life that I ate just plants right as a kid it was probably it's a complicated story but yeah it was ex-vegan vegetarian then eventually uh when i say a kid i mean like 15 16 um and then eventually it was you know standard diet that's where i landed you know uh, and but but standard diet still you know whole grain bread brown rice you know uh good stuff you know, that, that, that kind of thing, lots of hard healthy Cheerios, bananas. Yeah. I got a heart, you know, uh, strawberries, dried strawberries in my brand cereal. Uh, you know, I would eat boxes of Kashi, whatever, like, Ugh. you know, I was quote unquote healthy and, you know, healthy eater, but you know, what I didn't know at the time was I was probably predisposed to gain weight from high carbohydrate eating. Like most people are. And, uh, so yeah, I found myself at 350 pounds and, you know, basically miserable. I mean, you could have mirrored Phil's story with mine. You know? I mean, we we could have been brothers, in fact. We kind of look like brothers. Um, but um, I think...
0: I, I went to your website and researched, and I was like, uh, this is the same story.
3: Yeah, very similar just, story. It really is, really? yeah. And uh, so when I started like this, I had no skin in the game. People are like, Tro, you're a zealot, this, that, like... I never cooked a steak. I didn't, I didn't go to low carb because I thought, you know, I'm going to become some low carb. Celib. I went to low carb because I went to the literature and low carb always was better. Even if by a couple pounds, it always did better. That was it. That was it. I was an evidence-based doc, went to the head to head data. I'm like, I'm just going to pick the one that does better. So, and then Once you get into the data, you start to see the narrative unfold. So we talk about like this nutritional kind of matrix, you know, where low carb does better, but somehow in the conclusion, but LDL is up, you know, and, you know, you, you, you deep, you go further. Well, but it's, you know, meat based. And then you go into the meat, you know, observational data and you see that it's all bogus and BS and and it's health user bias. So, so once you start to read and like really just have a, 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 an ounce of a brain and an ounce of critical thinking and just a bit of questioning, that's all you need. It's not you don't need much. You just see it all unravel, you know, and, and once you see it all unravel, you know. By, and, by it, you mean? Uh, the, this current the messaging of eat, you know, seed oils and a bunch of grains for the environment, climate change and overall health. Right, you see the the nonsense, right? That's somewhere between religion, industry, uh, industry messaging, and uh, and dogma, right? And it's tough for people to understand what I'm what I'm saying right now, but this is the truth. Okay, your nutritional messaging from the government all the way to your cardiologist is a composite of industry funding, religion, and dogma. Right. That what's is what's the religion so that I mean, other people could probably talk to it better than I could. But, uh, you know, our whole dietetics association comes from the Adventists, right? seventh day Adventists who are profoundly vegan um, and and it's it's sort of like, you know, sin to eat animal meat. Um, so they're, uh, you know, Loma Linda, which is a huge kind of right. like, like nutrition center for research. Harvard's, publics, you know, these are all very plant-based uh, narratives. I'd say Harvard is more uh, dogma-based and Loma Linda is very much religion-based, you know, and you can track that through to dietetics and how Kellogg's, you know, uh, basically Seventh-day Adventists, and you can see kind of how they all morphed into one. And then industry, you know, you can track how Procter & Gamble basically started the AHA. So you have The Seventh-day Adventists and Kellogg's and their influence in dietetics. You have industry, Procter & Gamble, their vegetable oils on the AHA. And then you have sort of the dogma, the observational research that's just touted uh, by Harvard. So these are like the epicenters of, you know, misinformation right now when it comes to nutrition. (laughs) And it's tough to – it's tough for the average person to like – so to, to really understand this all because it's it. the doctor down the street is like is like yeah you should eat you know meat is going to kill you so but where i started as a 350 pound doc was just going back to the research and saying which antibiotic is better which surgical technique is better that's it right and it was low carb so that, that's where i started i got no skin in the game i didn't know all this I just found it out as I kept looking into the kept reading textbooks and research studies and saying, wait a second, we just put out a, you know, Phil, I know I'm yapping away here. You this, should is, have... this is good actually. No, this yeah. so, so, so we just put out a, so we, we analyzed a recent study, right? So, so me and Eric Westman, we looked at a recent study and and David Ludwig and Dr. Adrian Sotomoto, they looked at a uh, another study. So what we did was we looked at, at the same author by the way so we're both challenging the same author and what we found was this particular author this well-known nutrition author his name is christopher gardner who works is a self-proclaimed vegan he did a study looking at keto versus mediterranean and what he did was very interesting he stopped all the diabetes medications in the keto arm and he didn't stop them as much in the mediterranean arm And then he said, look, the A1Cs are the same, and you know what? Eating vegetables is better, so Mediterranean is better, right? And what he didn't say was he stopped more meds in the keto arm, right? So we put out a letter to the editor saying this is blatant bias. You can't do this, right? So, and then, you know, the same group of colleagues that we have, Dr. You know, David Ludwig and Dr. Adrian Sotomoda, he – they – Reanalyzed the diet fit study, another low fat versus low carb study. And they found that a significant portion of that weight loss, right, came from just being lower glycemic, right? So, so these researchers, people don't understand, they publish their studies and they say their results. But the bottom line is, is there's so much design and engineering crafted, to try to equalize the results. And the lay person doesn't understand. We have to write the letter to the editor saying, you know, we're calling BS. We're calling BS. So this is the nature of our nutritional landscape right now is there's a lot of interest. And, you know, that's just the way it is. I don't blame them. You know, they're smart. They're good at what they do. So that's my story. You know, went from a 350-pound guy to a 200-pound guy and you know I've had struggles in between, but I had to unlearn everything, just like Doctor Phil. Yeah, I just and you want know
0: summarize what I heard because because we've got three physicians and a dope on this call. Yes, yeah. so, and I want to make sure that I got it, and that the people like me who are listening got it as well. What I heard you say is there are studies that get published that support a position that is really the result of religion, dogma, and corporate interests all driving toward a particular conclusion. Yeah. And without somebody being a, a a cop like you guys are being, these studies go, they get enter, entered into the literature as if they were legit.
3: So, the, so that's, did, I, did I say that right? Yeah. So that study, like one, let me give you a concrete example. We had a keto versus Mediterranean study. And into the books, if you read the conclusion, no diet is better is what it said. But buried in it is that they stopped more diabetes medications in the group that was ketogenic versus Mediterranean. So they do you mean they were able to stop more? Correct, to get the same A1C level. So look, they said, look, we stop we put half these people on keto, we put another half on Mediterranean, and they said the A1C at the end is the same. But they stopped five meds in the you know in the keto arm, and they didn't stop those five meds in the Mediterranean arm. So what they're doing is they're saying, Oh, look. The A1C is the same. The level of diabetes improvement is the same, right? And that's their conclusion. But what they buried is we got five people off meds on the ketogenic arm. So, and that's not anywhere to be seen in the, in the, in the study or on the front page. So this is a very smart tactic for somebody who has an interest in the Mediterranean diet and making it look good and wanting to um you know is a biased whether it's implicit or explicit I don't know
0: it's presented as objective science and in fact there was an objective behind the study yeah. but it wasn't just to follow the data wherever it led
1: yeah and and I think this is something we see you know repeated often these days in that the the studies are designed to get the result uh, that they, that's you know desired, uh, we instead of you know going at science um, as trying to answer, trying to find the answers to unanswered questions, um, sure. oftentimes today they start with the answer and then they say, "How do we design the studies to to support this answer?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, a problem that I think we see uh, so often. I wanted to highlight something, you know, kind of in all of our stories here. Um, And it's interesting to me that, you know, Tro, being the smart guy he is, you know, he has a problem and he can't solve the problem. So he goes to the literature and, you know, without bias, just looking for an answer to his problem, he comes to a conclusion and he tries it and it works. Uh, And, you know, he now continues to. Uh, get more data and uh, try it with more people and publish the results uh, like science should be done. You know, it was interesting that I sort of came at it in a different way. You know, I had a problem. I just kind of, I knew what I was doing wasn't working. I was presented with an alternative solution, uh, you know, by a journalist, very well-known journalist, we all know, uh, Gary Tobbs. And I said, this makes sense. Let me try it. And I tried it and it worked. And then I went to the literature to figure out why the hell it worked, because, you know, everything I had learned previously said it shouldn't work and it worked. And, you know, we we end up at the same spot. Uh, But, you know, what's most interesting to me, I think, about this metabolic health thing is that we see all of these different specialties, all of these different people who start with different problems and yet they end up at the same place. Uh, And I think that's Ultimately, you know what's most powerful about this. And um, you know, I just love everything that Tro and Laura and uh, are doing to get the data out there about, you know, this does work, why it works, and then to you know be dispelling uh, the, the myths, uh, essentially that have, the, the dogma uh, that uh, we all learned. Um, So, Laura, talk a little bit more, though, about, um, you know, it it, typically when you're going through medical school, um, the approach is just, you know, kind of put your head down, memorize what they're telling you, be able to spew it back on the test. uh, And yet you were able to, you know, recognize uh, pretty early on that it wasn't matching up with sort of your life experience. And uh, be able to challenge that, to not just accept it, I should say. Um, so what what was that like for you? Why do you think you were able to do that? Uh, I imagine you probably, you know, tried to get some of your classmates involved with this. And they were like, no, nope, they're telling us something. We got to listen to what they're telling us.
2: So I did have, uh, besides Matt, who is so my husband, who's also in family medicine now, he was my I'll say a like partner in all of this and just really started diving deep into the research as well. And, um, we're both very fortunate in that we love researching this topic. We love nutrition and physical activity exercise. So for us, you know, we, besides our workout in the morning, we were probably basically just studying or reading literature books, podcasts pretty much all day until we went to bed and then it was rinse and repeat. So we were just taking in as much as possible. Um, and and enjoyed it. So that was, you know, obviously lucky. Um, I did have another friend in med school who was also super interested in this stuff. And so it was great to go back and forth and have discussions with him and he still had, you know, some differing viewpoints, which was made for healthy debate, but there are other people who saw what we were doing. They saw our meal prep. We would, were always known for the meal prep and would get questions about that. And we actually ended up making a website to show what we were doing in medical school with between our meal prep the glucose monitors and testing out different foods and beverages and putting that information out there for people to see and um even started doing some review articles and writing up different topics so it's just kind of been a passion of ours to try to take what we've learned and help other you know spread that to other people
0: um uh, we what what surprised you what, do you have any any memories of significant surprises for yourself as you're wearing the con- continuous glucose monitor and and preparing your own food? And what what was shocking to you that was either shockingly good or shockingly bad that you were putting in your body that you made a change as a result of doing that?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll kind of, I'll answer that. And then one other thing kind of related after reading Nina Teicholz's book, The Big Fat Surprise, I started eating red meat on a regular basis and reading some other research where I had barely touched red meat for almost a decade because I was concerned about the health effects. So that was just very liberating to actually read the research myself and no longer feel scared or bad about eating red meat and enjoying it and realizing how nutritionally good it is for you. Um, but with the glucose monitor specifically, I, the, there are these healthy oatmeal fiber bites. Cause at, at one point I was all about trying to get 50 grams of fiber in every day. And so they only had two grams of sugar, eight grams of fiber. And these were, and there's also these millet flax chips, which again, very low net carb. Most of the entire flax chip was fiber and my sugar on a daily basis was again, it was going above 160, 180. I even hit above 200 once. (laughs) And so this was, I mean, I don't know where I would have landed had I not gotten a continuous glucose monitor because I probably would have kept doing that thinking I'm low carb, eating healthy, high fiber diet.
0: I know you three all understand what it means when the blood sugar is high, but unpack that for, for the layman.
1: And just before you even do that, Laura, one thing to point out is, you know, you were in your, I'm assuming your twenties, you were athletic, um, you weren't overweight and yet here you are, you know, having blood sugars that basically diagnose you with diabetes. Uh, you know, th- those are meeting the criteria for type two diabetes, uh, essentially.
2: Yeah, it was crazy. I was, could not believe it. <laughs>
0: So, so what does it mean that that you talked about inflammation and damage to the blood vessels? I mean, explain that like I'm five.
2: So, Troy, do you want to take that? Sure, or- yeah, yeah, I'll do
3: it. Uh, yeah, imagine you're piping. Every blood vessel in the body is like a pipe, and you have small and smaller pipes. So, literally, having sugar in the blood vessels attacks the walls of those pipes right? It literally binds to those walls, it binds to a bunch of proteins, and that binding causes basically damage to those pipes. So the first pipes to get damaged are the pipes in the those very small pipes going to the eyes, right? And Which the is why pipes, yeah, you get blurry vision. The, oh. Yeah, blurry vision is one of the right and then some of the fluid changes also can affect that blurriness of vision right and then uh you get issues with the kidneys the small blood vessels in the kidneys and the place where most people probably feel it is you know they'll lose um sensation in their toes and their hands in a glove and stocking way and that's called um diabetic peripheral neuropathy and that's the small pipes to the nerves basically being damaged by the blood sugar so so and not just that I mean it's it's you know not just chronically elevated but also those spikes have a a little bit more more damage to the endothelium um I mean the endothelium that? is that that the layer of the piping on the inside of the pipe you know um so bottom line is this is that, is that why the medium.
0: cholesterol builds up there's damage to the endothelium and the the body's response to the damage is to send cholesterol to help Well, I'll let the expert take that one.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, uh, cholesterol cannot get into the blood vessel wall unless the endothelium is damaged, unless the lining of that blood vessel is damaged first. And so this is why, um, you know, uh, trying to um, address the cholesterol is an ineffective approach if you're not addressing the damage to the blood vessel wall.
0: Okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, so, look, look. Bottom line is, you know, bl- high blood sugar is not good. At some point, it can even affect the the arteries and the carotids and the heart. For example, um, you know, the first places to get attacked are the small blood vessels. Eventually, those big, big blood, you know, those big blood vessels to the brain and to the heart aren't too happy. So you don't want those high blood sugars.
0: Okay, I, that that makes more sense to me. All right. So positive was you're you're eating red meat, Laura. Um, what surprised you that you thought was good that turned out to not be?
2: Um. So those fiber, basically processed fibers. Those uh,
0: things spiked your blood sugar.
2: Yeah, like crazy. Even though
0: their net, their net, net carbs are super low. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's and now we're seeing a, a lot more products on the market, actually, where I've had other patients wearing continuous glucose monitors and they will have similar things happen where they're like, but there's only a couple net carbs and their blood sugars will spike up. And, you know, it's interesting. I've even seen on some patients certain protein shakes where they will drink the protein shake, which I know I have witnessed another patient have and not affect their blood sugar. And yet they will have an increase in blood sugar. And so there's some there's person to person variability which is one of the reasons i love continuous glucose monitors so much is the cgm doesn't lie like if your sugar's going up it's going up if so there's nothing like that personal feedback that you can get otherwise in medicine
0: so the message i'm getting and i and i i've never never actually asked this direct question and i feel stupid that i haven't asked it but i do want to ask it the message I'm getting is keep your blood sugars down. Is that right?
3: Definitely. Just,
0: that's just kind of the rule. You down and stable. Down and stable. Yep. Okay. Um, can I follow up with a question that that was provoked as I read your website? Um, and Dr. Tro, I'd like I'd like to hear your thoughts on this first you talked about something that is not um not food based but is health that that has to do with the health of your patients um you talked about your journey realizing that you weren't spending enough time to, f- to get to the root cause of patient health problems and that's why you wanted to change your practice in addition to changing your own health and you talked about patient bonding p- bonding with patients and how important that was. And I, I just wanted to know more about that. What did you, what have you learned both from, uh, both on a negative and a positive side and what kind of positive responses can you, can you report?
3: Yeah. So, so actually, uh, Dr. Laura and I, we were talking about this. We had the luxury of meeting some real greats, uh, over this past weekend and, you know, this, this concept of bonding with a patient, being able to almost instantly establish rapport and uh, trust and being able to motivate, right, in a very short amount of time. How do we do that, right? So, so the ideal, like, solution for a doctor, right, is to be able to, one, establish rapport, you know, uh, trust and to be able to motivate. Right. And to be able to do it at the right exact time, like your patient is in the most vulnerable moment of their, their life. They're about to eat that one thing. It's going to make them feel like crap and shame and guilty. And they're going to go off plan forever. Right. At that one moment, we want to be able to intervene. So our ideal solution is actually being the best possible medical team at that one moment. Right. And in fact, our job can be super easy if we get very close to that one moment, right? So how do you get close to that one moment, right? The first beer, the first cupcake, whatever, right? Or the time where they're ready to quit the gym. So how do you get there, right? How do you get to, to have the impact you need in that moment? How is that possible? That's the ideal, right, that we're all striving for is to be able to get to that patient that moment. So we need to just focus in on that moment. That is your goal. That is all of our goals right now in that moment, that moment of weakness, that moment of, you know, loneliness, that moment of boredom, the moment of happiness, whatever it is that's going to drive them, the moment of stress or coping, depression, doesn't matter what it is. There's that moment, right? And so how do you get to a patient in that moment? It's a radical thought to be able to meet them at that moment. Right? Because we're used to thinking like visits, come see me for a visit, blah, 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 all this stuff, blood pressure, check this, check that, check this lab. It's all nonsense. It's all bullshit. Right? If you want to affect change, you need to get them in that moment.
0: In that moment.
3: Right? And you need to be able to pick them up at that moment. So all of this shit that we do is nonsense. Like if you think about it over a lifetime, so right? So I view it when the patient comes to me that they're establishing care for a lifetime right? A lifetime. I'm responsible for them for the rest of their life. So how do I, right, be the best possible? You, you, you be a doctor in the way we're taught, check labs, do routine screening, stuff like that, get a CAC, all that. But really what I want is to get to them at that moment. And to get them at the moment, sometimes it's discussing their labs. Sometimes it's making yourself vulnerable so they can relate to your vulnerability, right? And share their vulnerabilities. Sometimes it's just, you know, we called it this weekend, you know, Eric Westman called it, well, knowing when to spend more time with a patient. And, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, David Unwin called it wizardry, right? He called it wizardry, right? And it's funny, in our office, we call it Jedi mind tricks, you know, sort of like these are not the droids you're looking for, right? Right. These are not the problems you care about. You care about that moment. You don't really care about, you know, your triglyceride level of 60 to 50. You don't really care about that. Right? You don't really care about an A1C of 5.1 to 5.3. Right? These are not the droids you're looking for. The droids you're looking for in that moment, you know, that moment that could last five months where you're eating terribly, you're miserable, you're depressed, you're not exercising. So yeah, bonding is recognizing there's gonna be a time where that moment happens and you need to establish the rapport, the connection, everything possible to get to that patient in that moment, right? And that's, that is our mission. Our mission is that second of time, that minute to say, don't worry about it, you got this and we got you, right, in that moment. And I've prevented disease, that's prevention, right? Because I prevented months of them eating off plan. I prevented a year of their depression and now they've gained weight and they're depressed about gaining weight. And, you know, what else, or they had that one drink and that one drink led to 10 drinks. Those 10 drinks led to whatever it is, you know? So, so that's patient bonding is like, is. I'm
0: sorry, but that is, that's just an extraordinary story. As, as a guy who's never sat on, on y'all's side of the table, I'm always on, I'm the guy on the table, the thought of, of ha- I'm I'm very fortunate that I have a naturopathic physician who's ta- who's cared for me for 17 years and and we have that kind of of bond but I realize that's wildly unusual and I've never heard anybody articulate it this way and as as the guy sitting on the table the thought that there are physicians out there who consciously intentionally have that as at the front of mind when i walk into the office i that's that's really exciting okay editorial done
1: and uh, well yeah so to follow up you know uh it, tell us a little bit about some of the uh i guess the innovative ways uh, that this manifests in your practice, because I know you're using tools and technology in really uncharted ways. uh, So you can be there at that moment and you can recognize what that moment is.
3: Yeah. So I could tell you about all the technology and I, and I, and I think it's cool, but I think honestly, it's upfront time, upfront time, a, a, a caring staff, Right. A caring staff, like a staff that believes, you know, I've practiced medicine in a way where it's that is my family member. Right. And I care about my family. That is a that is a celebrity. And The New York Times is going to do an interview on how I performed after that that interaction. Right. That's the level. Every interaction. Pretend The New York Times is going to come interview that person. Right. So even if you deliver bad news, you better make sure you did it in a motivating way, in an uplifting way. Even if, if you want to deliver mundane news, here's your A1C, here's this, here's that. You better find a way to make that so interesting to the patient. So I think the, the idea here is, is, you know, it's culture and you can't scale culture. So that's tough. And then the, all the tech stuff Ooh, is cool. Good. You know, the, the, the tech stuff is all cool. And that's cool it's cool stuff and i can get into it but i mean it's it's like most of it is just thinking differently and communicating that to a patient like what it is what your objective is i mean i could tell you you know we have a binge eating hotline we have a binge eating hotline we have a binge eating you know we have a going off your lifestyle plan get help now button and board you can go to and get help now from volunteer people. You don't have to interact with anybody that you don't want to interact with because of shame or guilt. You can just go to volunteers who are powering a place just to get you back on track wherever you are, right? I could tell you that we have, you know, CGMs and scales and cuffs and, you know, keto meters, And if you don't use them, we'll nudge you into using them. And yeah, you know, there, there's all these like fancy stuff, but I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I almost don't like the fancy stuff is helpful. You know, because eating is is like something we want to be subconscious about, and we have to rip it out of the subconscious. So, so the, the tools like the CGM are so irreplaceable, but it's it's the act of what's really irreplaceable is the act of taking something subconscious and and sparking change.
2: Right? I want to jump into with something that I think again with the technology, but it's the culture the of everyone that is there. Um, I won't use any patient names, but there is a patient who sent us a message on using a, basically a way you can text us back and forth. It's HIPAA compliant and kind of reached out and said, Hey, I'm having these stomach pains. So I just, you know, immediately called her up, found out she had gone off plan and she knows, you know, when she goes back to eating certain types of carbohydrate rich foods that it does cause abdominal pain and distress. And she. You know, there's guilt about having gone off plan. And it's like, no, don't feel bad about it. That happens all the time. How? Let's figure out what we're going to do next time. You feel like you're about to go off plan so that we can plan in advance how that won't happen, what we're going to do instead when that craving hits and, um, you know, get rid of that guilt and the shame. Let's, you know, write a card, have a note card that you write down. Hey, I'm having a craving. I know if I eat this thing, my stomach will hurt. I want my body to feel good. And so she did that. And then I, Tro and Amy and Brian have created amazing articles and resources in the app. Some about your relationship with food. And so I recommended that she to go check out some of those articles about understanding your relationship to food. And so that was last week. Today, I got a message from her saying, I read these articles And she had written in a journal kind of some of the things that were really touched her and had a really big impact on her when she read them and just was so excited to have that deeper understanding about her relationship to food. And it could really relate to what was said. And she was just so grateful for that. And so I said, awesome. I'm so glad. And, and it was just this great interaction. And that was all pretty much virtual. I mean, I, you know, I did call her, but then after that, we were just communicating and, She's she's doing great. And there's instead of having that time where she went off plan, become this spiral like Crow was talking about, instead, she's now has this new deeper understanding of her relationship with food and is excited about this journey now.
0: I I gotta say, this model of healthcare that I'm hearing you describe as as the guy on the table, that's so exciting to me. And I know the people listening are, are having the same kind of thought. I would love to have a doctor. I would love to have a healthcare team who looked out for me this way, who saw me as a human being with strengths, weaknesses, appetites, failures, all, the standard equipment that all human beings come with, and helps me become a better version of myself not just what we're all used to um, <laughs> how do you scale this dr. Tro oh man um, okay. I, I, I realize I'll
3: I realize that's a big question but okay I so tell the, you how you scare it I'll tell you how you scale it you build up like five or ten doctors with reasonable practices okay you set up a medical organization you have those five or 10 doctors serve as mentors to about 300 doctors. You loop in personal trainers, health coaches, you know, dietitians, nurse practitioners, PAs to become members. You slowly educate them, slowly influence them. And then when you get to a point, you scale the tech, right? You have to scale the tech and you have to scale the empathy. And the critical thinking—that's the part I'm, I'm thinking about—is so. The, so the you have to thinking. scale the tech, and then you have to scale the empathy, the culture, the critical thinking. So, and you have to hire people smarter than you. So I've got—you know—we're working on them. We're working on it. There's a long-term plan here, you know. Um, but we need help. We need funding. You know, we have funding, but you know, we need help with tech. We need help. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing when you're scaling um, health tech. Right. Oh, so you yeah. can get into the business of it, but health tech is very difficult. There's APIs, there's HL7 communication, fire standards, you know, and, and databases. And, and it's just not an easy thing to. It's not, you know, everybody's looking to do that, right? Everybody's looking. To do, and the people who get close, they get bought out. You know, uh, the people who get close to like one medical was just bought out. So, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to. So. Scaling the tech is one thing. Scaling the culture and empathy and knowledge, that, that's that's another thing. It's the culture
0: that, that, that I'm wondering about.
1: Yeah. You know, and one of the things that's uh, struck me about the, the culture, I guess you could say, is, you know, when I interact with, you know, the, my colleagues in this space, in the metabolic health space, in the low-carb space, um, you know, you see uh, them thinking like this, you know, they have the, uh, empathy that, you know, Tro is talking about, uh, they're excited about their jobs. Um, and then you go around the hospital and you go to, you know, traditional medical meetings and it's just a whole different, uh, approach, you know, everyone is kind of defeated and they're just trying to get through the day and, um, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate, uh, I think that the healthcare system has, you know, kind of beaten down doctors so much um, and really all, everyone involved in the healthcare system, it goes beyond the doctors. Uh, but, you know, ultimately uh, the low carb space, the metabolic health space, <clears throat> you you do start to see the light. Uh, and I know Tro has talked about this and and many others, uh you know many of our colleagues now have talked about it how it's reinvigorated their careers uh because they're actually helping patients they're helping people and i think you know this this um whatever you want to call it holistic approach uh it, it works
2: 100 yes. agree
3: totally
1: yep.
0: i have i have a couple of other questions that, um, come out of this idea of, uh, and I I don't want to just drop that last thing, but it's huge. It's, it is huge. And those of you who are listening to this podcast or watching us on YouTube, who are like me, who are the guys who sit on guys and gals who sit on the table and look across at these doctors and want them to help us with our health. I know you feel what I feel. Yes. This is what I want when it comes to healthcare. I refuse to call the the normal stuff healthcare anymore. I call it disease management and I don't want to be involved in the disease management industry. All right. So, um this is a question that that has nothing to do with what I just talked about, but it is related. Um intermittent fasting and um, the differences between male and female metabolism. Do you guys have any insight into that? I practice intermittent fasting. I basically eat two meals a day. Um, I don't eat until generally sometime afternoon, and then I'll have I'll have dinner, and then I don't eat again for another 16 hours. Um, it, as I understand it, that's certainly an effective approach for the male metabolism. Is there a difference for females?
3: I'll tackle it first. Uh, I think that uh, the, the individual struggle is different, right? When your estrogen or progesterone are surging, right? Your metabolic needs are different. We know that estrogen, for example, uh, you know, uh, is, is definitely increases metabolism and drives lean mass tissue, for example. So you have different sort of energy needs throughout the month as a female. And maybe cer- certainly during during the sort of most, uh, you know, the, the times of the month where there's peaking out estrogen, um, I'd imagine the metabolic needs are different and the energy needs are different. So I think that, you know, with that with that said, uh, you know, outside of the, that small little window of, you know, surging hormones, for the most part, anybody can intermittent fast. Um, I think the problem becomes and i've seen this many times people with let's say and it happens to affect women more although i've been affected by this uh, weight stigma you know body image issues right and excessive restriction can manifest through and anyway from anorexia to a desire to fast right and so people could very much energy restrict right and when you energy restrict enough you can cause hormonal dysregulation both for men and women The issue with women is they see it right away, right? Men, it may take months until they feel the effects of low testosterone and thyroid downregulating, but women will see their period kind of, you know, so they get this, the the clinical feedback you've done too much. So I think it's not really a male versus female thing outside of sort of, you know, uh, cyclical issues, you know, for a couple of days. Um, uh, there's not major differences in the need, but uh, you know, and and the ability to fast, but but some of these other issues I think play a factor. I don't know, Doctor Laura, what do you think?
2: Yeah. yeah, so I have not looked at the research actually within intermittent fasting specifically and female metabolism, but from a clinical perspective, kind of what I've seen, um, and I'll just say my personal anecdote as well: the first few days or first days right before the start of the cycle the appetite does go up a lot. And I think for me, it would be more difficult to intermittent fast. Um, I have done it, but it's definitely, it's a lot more mental work. And um, so typically I'll just go have some protein and not worry about the fasting because of that. Um, Now in patients, I have seen a lot of people get huge benefits from intermittent fasting and their cycles remain regular, which is a good sign, but they actually have a significant improvement. in maybe they had menorrhagia or meaning like very heavy menstrual cycles that would be considered abnormally heavy. And they actually go become less into what would be considered normal. And so, which is wonderful for the person you can imagine. Um, And then I've also seen women who get uh, migraines with their cycles that go away with intermittent fasting and low carb. And so I think it kind of like Tro was saying is more person dependent because there is the, it's not,
0: it's not gender dependent.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay.
3: Outside but, of these small kind of issues, you know? Right. Right. Um, we're
0: coming up on an hour here, which is where we generally try to, to end it. But before we, before we do, are there questions that you wish somebody would ask you that, haven't been asked yet.
3: Um, yeah, I wish a programmer, full stack programmer would come to me and say, please, can I help you in any way? <laughs> so a full stack with MySQL experience and experience with uh, Power BI and data analytics and programming. So I wish they would come and say, how can I help you? That's what I wish somebody would ask me. <laughs> That's my that's my uh, New Year's wish. Uh, that's
1: we can that's make a good
2: that one. Happen. I <laughs> I think you know it'd be amazing if I had you know medical schools or residency programs come up and say, hey, do you have a low carb or therapeutic carbohydrate reduction um, nutrition curriculum to actually teach our medical students, our residents, so that they can actually prevent and reverse chronic disease rather than just manage it? And I would tell them I'm working on it, and so get back to me in a couple of months or maybe a year and hopefully we can actually do that. But that, that would be awesome.
0: I think both of those things are going to happen. I hope so. We we know people.
1: We'll Mm -hmm. get you. We'll get there. We know Um, Laura, before we, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you what it's like, uh, you know, now that you've started your career uh, in this manner. And I'm sure again, you, you talk to your, you know, Classmates from residency, from medical school, and you know most of them have probably followed different paths, and and are you know employed physicians, um, as most you know the vast majority of physicians are these days. Uh, they're basically working either for a healthcare system or an insurance company, or in many cases both. Uh, so, what's it like, you know, for you, uh, not uh, sort of being entrapped in that system? It's incredible.
2: I, you know, I, I actually made a tweet about this the other day, but I go to work and I don't feel like I go to work. I love what I'm doing. And that's the best thing you can ask for. And I, you know, I love working with Troy. I love, The whole team is great. And we see, I see on a daily basis when I follow up with patients, the improvement in their lives and the stories they tell. And it's just, it's exciting. It's fun. <laughs>
0: Well, let's wrap it up. Um tell us a little bit about the 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 business side of your healthcare. Um uh, the geographically, who do you serve? How do you serve them? And um where is it going from here?
3: I'll I'll take that. Um So uh, the practice is in 50 states. Dr. Laura is seeing all new kind of primary and metabolic health patients. So she'll be, uh, she'll be seeing those. I'll certainly be available to consult. Uh, We're in all 50, or I'm sorry, 48 states. Hawaii and Alaska can just wait. Okay. Hawaii and Alaska can just wait, but we're in 48 states and uh, we do full metabolic care um, sort of virtual primary care. We have a flagship program or weight loss program, which is very intensive, several health coaches, personal trainers. We have an app. You don't need us just join that. If you don't need us and you you know, you have a good medical team and you don't need that medical care. You want a community, you want regular meetings. We have several weekly meetings. We have a intro to low carb course. We have an intro to fasting course. We have that are live and Kind of with health coaches and foster that community feel. Um, we have a full curriculum on there on our app, Doctor Tro app. I don't know, did I miss anything? That so, where are we going? Uh, we're going to be launching. We're going to be selling CGMs nationwide in about forty-eight hours. So we're going to be selling CGMs nationwide in about forty-eight hours. So how's, how's that going to happen? It's happening. We're doing it.
0: Oh no no, no. Oh. this oh. this. When, yeah, you go to when, the what 48 hours app. from now? Yeah, yeah, 48 hours from now. Two weeks ago, when people start hearing this. So yeah,
3: yeah. so so uh, yes, you go, you download the Doctor Tro app, and you can purchase a CGM. You you get a you know informed consent done, and then you can purchase purchase a CGM, um, and it's now freely available, democratized to anybody who wants that. And we have a curriculum on CGMs right on there that you can follow and get access to it um, with videos g- guiding you on how to you know, understand it, the pitfalls and everything you should know about it. So, uh, Dr. Laura, did I miss anything? <laughs> uh,
2: as far as you know, some other things we're working on that hopefully will be up and running in the not too distant future, we're translating the entire app into Spanish so that we can hopefully help that community as well.
3: Yeah, we're we're. I forgot about that translating that to Spanish. We're working with an IRB with Stanford, uh, which is going to be huge uh, in the metabolic psychiatry space. So and look out for that.
0: Lot. An IRB.
3: Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're we're doing a uh, uh, research project with Stanford to analyze the. Uh, you know, I can't go too much into it, but we're working with Stanford on uh, the field of metabolic psychiatry. Very good. Yeah. So a lot All of right. things. We're 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 full steam ahead. Love it. So we need, uh, we need your help, Jack and Phil. We need, you know, we need the we need some wind in our sails, maybe one day, well, right? Well, as a guy,
0: as just a guy, I love this. I have been so you know, I, I I like to tell folks before I met Phil, I was deeply cynical about the field of medicine in general. And I had been working to get less cynical, and then um, the more I talked with Phil, the more I realized I wasn't cynical enough. And, and no, 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 slam against him. He just he confirmed my worst fears. Um, and it was it's been wonderful to know that there are physicians like him, and then hearing your model for for patient care. Oh my God, who there is nobody. Who wouldn't love that? Who doesn't stand to benefit financially from it staying the same? All the rest of us, all us schmucks down in the dirt and muck who just want to have a good life. That's wildly exciting. So uh, we, we need to make sure folks know how to get a hold of you. As I see it, drtro.com, doctor spelled out, not dr, but d o c t o r.com, drtro.com, T R O. Um, any other ways folks should should track you down?
3: Dr. Tro app, you know, Dr. Tro spelled out our app. uh, You know, we're there every day of the week. There's something for you. So uh, our goal is, you know, like I said, trying to get as close to that moment as possible.
0: I love it. I love it. And there looks like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. So we'll make sure all that information is available in the show notes. Sorry, Dr. Laura interrupted you.
2: Oh, no worries. I was just going to say, um, in addition to Twitter and Instagram, having have an agingsuccessfully.substack.com for some more information and on varied topics that will have to relate to aging well.
0: I need to make sure that one gets noted because I don't remember that one. Agingsuccessfully.substack.com. Yep. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, for Dr. Perfect. Philip Ovedia, I'm Jack Heald. Phil, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, it's been a pleasure um, talking with uh, both of you and uh, bringing this conversation to the audience. I think they're really going to love it and uh, look forward to seeing where it leads next and what we can do to build it together, guys.
0: 100% agree.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Well, we'll talk to you all next time. Sounds good.